0: Hi, I'm Jonah, and you're listening to Punks & Pubs Podcast. I'm interrupting the start of the podcast to let you know about my band, Last Generation. We're an environmental punk band based in Derby, aged 13 to 18, and we've just released our debut EP, Greatest Stakes Equals Greatest Say. Uh When we recorded this EP, we were actually aged 11 to 16. You can check us out on social media, on Instagram and TikTok at Last Generation underscore UK, on Twitter at Last Gen underscore UK, and the Last Generation Facebook page. If you want to check the EP out, you can search Greatest Stakes equals Greatest Say EP on Bandcamp if you want to buy and support us or stream it on all platforms. So the song you're about to hear is Greatest Stakes equals Greatest Say, title track. Don't say
1: doing uh, my name is Liam Birds, and welcome to the punks in pubs podcast <laughs> how's life treating you you well you boss up your ass loved one pissing you off fucking cat won't stop looking at you directly in the eyes as it's licking out his own fucking arsehole well whatever is going on with you time to forget all that shit And enjoy an hour plus of quality chat. Because for this episode, there are no trick or treats. Get it? Because it's Halloween. We live in a world where Halloween puns have to be in any kind of show of any sort. Radio, TV, or podcast. Hey! I didn't ask to live in this world. I'm just a part of it. Just playing its part. I don't know why the fuck I'm talking like this. It's it's, it's a weird introduction anyway. But um, I'm going to keep going. (laughs) Anyway. um, What I'm saying is that I've got a legit gem of a show today, because my guest for episode 75, I think it's 75, is Dave Haas, or Haas, or Horse. People seem to say his name in all kinds of ways, and I never actually asked him the question of actually, how do you actually say your name? Probably should have. Dave Haas, let's go with that. For kids who don't know who Dave is, he is a former frontman of one of my favourite bands, The Loved Ones. Um, We obviously talk about that. And uh, before The Loved Ones, he was also playing in a couple of hardcore bands in Philadelphia. We obviously talk about that in his time in Philadelphia. But Dave has a new album out called Blood Harmony. Shockingly, we also speak about that as well. Uh, You can also expect chat about social media, manliness and singing the national anthem at sporting events. Dave also, uh, quite surprisingly, and I didn't expect this, speaks very candidly uh, about his time at Fat Record and Mike when the loved ones were signed uh, to Fat or will be revealed. I don't know why I'm telling you this. You can just fucking listen to it now. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to shut the fuck up. I really enjoyed this one and I think you will too. So this is me and Dave. Enjoy. Oh,
0: bring me some water. Text for investments, borrowed eyes, borrowed world, borrowed time. I'm feeling jumpy like a salesman. Waking up to trusty coffee ivy. We're crammed in like so much cash.
1: You, pal you good you got a social distortion shirt on
2: yes i'm doing well um i'm doing well and i have a social distortion shirt on that i actually bought when we opened for them last week in ventura uh i had seen them the night a night prior or whatever we opened for them in berkeley and they went on stage and my wife was watching them and i said i'm leaving i saw the show I'm super tired. I got to go home, relieve the babysitter. And she couldn't believe it. She was like, You're not going to stay for the show? I said, No. And as I was walking out, I bought the shirt, and the merch guy looked at me like I was crazy because he's like, Well, don't you want this? Like, if you go to the tour manager and get the code word, <laughs> like, I was like, I don't want any headaches. I just want to buy the shirt. <laughs> i don't want to talk to the tour manager i don't want (laughs) to ask the manager for a free shirt i want to pay for this shirt and leave like a patron like a regular person i'm at a rock and roll show and i'm leaving early so that was my night and that's how i got this shirt because i love this record uh white light white heat white trash and that's the story of my brand new 35 (laughs) dollars (laughs) socials
1: if i'm honest you are living the best life i think of every guy over the age of 35 who really does just want to go home, but they' they're there, and they'll feel like they'd be judged if they don't leave if
2: they if they leave Well yeah i I did go home. I had to fly out the next morning for some uh, for some a show in Chicago. We actually were um extras on the show Chicago Fire. Um, oh wow yeah, had to get up at five o'clock the next morning, so I got home, relieved the babysitter of her duties, and then cleaned up the house and went to bed. <laughs> And so uh, you know, that's the story of my life. Did you say you open for social distortion? Yeah, we did. We Renown, did two shows. Left. So renowned
1: audience of difficulty social D fans. How how was it? Surprisingly terrific.
2: Um <laughs> I had opened for them solo in 2013, I think it was, and uh it was a lot harder then. Um I think the two things must have happened. Either some people caught on to what I'm doing and what our band is doing. And or people are just so starved for live music and so excited to see a rock and roll band that they were kind to us. So both shows, Berkeley and Ventura, it was really fun. It was great to see them, their old friends, and just getting that little kick in the ass from a, from your, like a big brother band as a record's coming out is a good thing. You know, you sort of watch them and see what they're doing. They're further down the path, obviously, than I am. And they do it with dignity and grace and, and they sound great. And so it was great. It was terrific.
1: You spoke about the new album, uh, Blood Harmony.
2: Am I right in saying it comes out tomorrow physically or digitally? Digitally, it comes out tomorrow. Physically, uh, most people that ordered from us CDs have already gotten them. Vinyl, <laughs> you have. how long is your podcast? You got until um, 2024 until you get your vinyls, guys. No, no, we'll get them sooner. But we our intention, owning our own label, was to get people who pre-ordered the record vinyl before the release day that was like our goal and we didn't realize that we were in the midst of such upheaval with supply chain issues and stuff so our goal now is i think we're we're meant to get the first we're getting 900 records a week for the next couple of weeks that should fulfill all the orders and then the record stores and stuff. So, and when I said that to various friends in the business, they were like, Oh, that's great. You know, our, our record comes out in November and we're not getting vinyl till next summer. you know, there's all these horror stories. So thankfully I think we're, we're still ahead of most, but we're, we didn't meet our goal, which was to get people the record before Release day, but I can't fix a a um, supply chain issue. Sadly, I can only make songs rhyme, and even that is, is difficult.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is interesting. There's a lot of people right now who are getting emails from independent record labels, but they're, they're basically saying, "Guys, we're really sorry. If you want your money back, you can have your money back, but please don't take your money back." <laughs> like, is that kind of like yeah? Because I think I think it's like really important that people understand that vinyl sales now are up there with merch sales and with bands not being able to tour like it's even more important now that people actually probably invest a little bit and wait a little longer to get the physical musical format
2: it certainly helps us um as far as like what people should and shouldn't do i i I rarely kind of comment on that because i don't know everyone's individual situation but it does help us like in, in making that part of it really clear to everyone i think is all i can do i can say look you know, when you buy a physical copy of the record, a physical vinyl or a physical CD, now that we own the master, it's even more helpful to us. Um, if people can find them that in their hearts to do that in 2021, where we've got all these other issues, then great. And 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 if you just want to stream it, that's okay too. Just stream it extra. And if you can afford to come out and see us play, please do. Like I, I'm I'm well aware that in in two thousand twenty one, you know, we're a bit like the jesters in the cart. You know, we um we can always eat last if the camp doesn't like what we're doing. And, and I, I think I'm well aware of those economics and, and yet um, it's so important to me, you know, to the, the act of creating songs and recording songs and, and that exchange of energy and that exchange of ideas is so crucial to the way I live that um, I put an inordinate amount of importance on it in my life. And then I try to reset those expectations and hopes when it comes to dealing with actual people who have actual jobs and lives who are potentially going to support that music. So it's it's hard. I think um, there's the creative side of me and then there's the business side of me. And I try to stay very close to my working class roots. Well, it's
1: interesting you talk about your working class roots, particularly in Britain at the moment. It seems to be there's a lot of middle class and people who work in the industry bands who are who are making a lot of noise and, and are seen as the music of the future, I suppose. And okay. there's a lot of people who are kind of getting into punk as well, and punk has always been a very much a working class music. That seems to be changing. It seems to be a lot of middle class kids making punk. And, and there is a backlash towards it saying, well, how, how can you make punk music if you're from the middle class? My argument is if you've got something to say and you mean it, then sure go at it as a person who has worked from the bottom and 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 has done day jobs if you go on tour with a a a guy who you know's got like family members in the music industry how easy is it to like just like don't bust his balls over the fact that he's probably had it a lot easier than a lot of the people who you've probably worked up with and then seen fall by the wayside
2: I just don't think it's important to my journey. It has nothing to do with me or my kids or my wife or my sisters or my brother. And I try to gauge things that way. I mean, jealousy is an ugly thing to engage with. And typically, if you're worried about someone else and how they grew up and how that impacts whether or not their songs are relevant, you're engaging in jealousy. And I just try not to go there. And the older I get, the the less appealing it is in others. And so if I ever get in that headspace, I try to change the channel. Is it important? No. I mean, at the end of the day, Joe Strummer was the son of a diplomat. I don't think he struggled much for, you know, I mean, he had a soft place to land, theoretically, you know, with a dad that did that work. And he's the, the most outsized version of a punk rocker and a great teacher that we've had in the punk world. I mean, do I snicker sometimes? Sure. Brian Fallon and I love to sometimes go. Can you believe this? You know. However, well, it's just us blowing off steam, and I don't think those are our best angels when when we get into that kind of discussion. You know, make whatever sounds come out. I don't think uh, you you don't need a working class badge to do anything. Um, in fact, a lot of times that baggage pre- prevents you from maybe doing more interesting or important things. So you know, you want to steer clear of those kinds of things as, as much as you can. If if you want to make a noise. Make whatever noise comes out. It doesn't matter what your dad did for work.
1: Like I said, we're going to talk about the new album in a moment. And I'm probably ask you questions that you've answered a hundred times, but I want to start out though, by asking you about a tweet you put out. I uh, okay. made the second 2020 cause I'm going to, you need to know this because uh, you, you obviously you're a man who knows every single thing you put out on social media. Um, you put, you put out free advice for this week. One, don't talk about eating food on Twitter. And two, Don't praise Canadian gum policy on Instagram. Now, people seem to pick up on the gum policy bit. I'm more interested on what did you put out on Twitter regarding food and that pissed people off? I have no idea. (laughs) Because clearly it it had a lasting impact on you that you had to...
2: I know, clearly it didn't if I don't remember it. Um, (laughs) That's the thing with Twitter is it's ruminations in the moment that aren't that important. I don't know, man. I I wish I could remember, but I can't remember where I was like four days ago at this point. I have two, I have twin toddlers. They're about to be three in January. And so any, uh, memory is, uh, dedicated to them. (laughs) It's like any, any, any bandwidth I have, I, I try to give to them and, and cannot remember anything about that tweet to be honest. I remember Uh tweeting that, but I don't remember what it was in reference to. Maybe the Canadian gun policy, I probably was just making a obvious, the very obvious observation that, look, when you have a gun policy that's sensible, you have less shootings, It's not that fucking hard to figure out.
1: How do you find engaging on social media? Because some people will just get away from it and don't like it. You seem to be quite active on social media. So you seem to quite enjoy it.
2: No, I find it to be a necessary evil in the given that that I do this for my job. I don't actually know that it is necessary. I enjoy it to a point, uh, I guess, because I have it pretty easy. I don't I don't I guess I don't have that. Many hot takes that are disputable or whatever, you know, like I don't, you know, in other words, I'm mostly preaching to my own choir, I suppose, (laughs) which may be why the numbers don't move that often. But ultimately, I just think it's the world we're living in. It's the way we're communicating better, I think, probably for the worse, frankly. I think uh, we went on one date with the internet and decided to get married and now we're fucking stuck. But all that said, I'm just looking for connection the way other people are too. You know, I'm looking to connect and try to understand the the broader world. And that's the way our species is doing it right now. And I think it's not great, but it is what it is. And, and so I'm, trying to keep somewhat engaged i think it's bad for people and it's bad for me for sure i have to take breaks from it you know whether that's throughout the day or throughout a week or throughout a month i mean we're right in the thick of releasing an album tomorrow so i i can't really bring myself to take breaks but there have been some natural breaks recently i was on the east coast busy and me last night uh we had a song show up in a big tv show here chicago fire and i was out at a a concert i went to see wilco with my wife and so i didn't really engage with it and it was it was nice to kind of not be right on the edge of oh, what's happening. What's happening. Did it air? Did it air? What do people think? You know, not being in that headspace was cool. I was like outside at a Wilco show and that was, that was quite nice. So you got to be careful with it. I think it's like any other addictive thing. It's Narcissa. It's all that shit. So
1: one of the things that you've spoken about a lot is you're trying to think of the right terminology, but uh, in, in your past tense of alcohol and drug abuse, you, you spoke about how before shows was the times where about you would go and do something because you you're bored and you got nothing to do. I'm just trying to think like is social media that exact same thing? Like you got nothing to yeah. do, so you pick up your phone and you just start engaging. And,
2: and- it's not the exact same thing, but it's similar. There are similars hmm. similarities. Um, uh it's similarly addictive, maybe more because it's a slow burn. I think you can see the impacts of booze and drugs a lot more acutely this is a sinister thing. It's like just tiny drops of dye in, in the ocean, you know, eventually it changes, but it takes a while. I don't know. I, you know, it's almost like this pandemic. It's like, I, I spent a couple of months trying to figure out, well, how are we going to get back to work? And it occurred to me at one point, like, well, if Pearl jam can't figure it out, I certainly can. Or if, Coachella can't figure out. I certainly can. And I think that's true here too. You know, there's, there's, there are people a lot smarter than me and a lot more well-researched than me when it comes to social media. And I think that we just need to listen to the studies and keep an eye out and, and mind your own kind of shop, you know, keep your temple clean, so to speak. Um, Because I don't, but I don't generally think it's a great thing. I think there are great things about it, but generally I think it's a net negative the, the, the fact that we're this engaged with social media.
1: How do you think you would have dealt with it as a kid? Worse. Yeah. Is that just because as a kid you'd be a bit more boisterous and you will not give a fuck or is it because you...
2: Yeah, I think that and I think um, I wouldn't know any different. I think that's the other tricky thing is for people who, who have grown up with it, you don't know it any different. And um,
1: But to be fair though, we as adults who have grown with it we, yeah. we still don't know really fully like how nasty and how dangerous it is. So for us to teach our kids, it's it's difficult because we, we, we're we only going by a very short space of of time. And, and I yeah. think trying to teach kids about what social media is about is going to change in the next five, ten years. So it's really
2: difficult. It's something that is a worry. I mean, again, I don't my job right now as a dad, though, is to keep kind of worry out of my home, but at least when my kids are around. Um, It's to keep the place peaceful and to keep the place steady and to keep, you know, outside influences that are negative away. So I just have to kind of think about that much right now. And then as it develops, I'll have to, you know, little influences will keep infiltrating and I'll have to keep an eye on those with. With my wife, you know, what our kids are subjected to. But um, I don't know, man. I, I, you know, I think, yeah, I, I guess I'm simultaneously kind of like, holy mackerel, everything is going off a cliff here, whether it's social media mixed with uh, the melting of the ice caps and so on. And then it's getting better all the time. You know, that's my other bent is when you look at improvements for humans, for the species over the last hundred years or whatever. I mean, we just went through childbirth a couple of years ago with twin boys that might not have survived a hundred years ago, but likely wouldn't have. So, you know, I think it's good to sort of pan way, way out sometimes and go, all right, yeah, this is crazy, but we are safer as human beings than we were 150 years ago. We are less septic. We are um, more equal, more, not not equal, but more equal than we were 150 years ago, and so I think like sometimes that helps me temper the worry and and the anxiety.
1: Can you understand like your mom being worried about you listening to like heavy metal as a kid and going, yeah. "Oh, this is gonna rot his brain." Like, can you now yes. understand it? Yeah.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, and one of the records she found early on that she was horrified by was the Downward Spiral by Nine Inch Nails. Well, if I hear that record now, part of me, the small part of me, wants to go to the bar, get loaded call a drug dealer, listen to that record and drive off a cliff, a small part of me, Mm. but it had music. I mean, I think that she knew what art and music did for me and to see that depraved or, or nihilistic, a take on life is terrifying. And she, she also knew about the mental illness throughout my family, her, her dad and her uncles and my uncles and so on. Like, I think it's, the downward spiral is not exactly a record I want to find in my kid's room either. I have a different take on it. I feel like it's better. He made that record than open fire on a school or, or, you know, any, any of the, those kinds of terrible things. But in other words, like I'm not saying it's either, or it's not make the record or do that. But what I am saying is there's a value to that art that I understand that my mom might not have the fear of how our kids are going to end up when outside outsized, Influences infiltrate is a totally reasonable one.
0: Seems like you're doing better these days, even though things are falling apart. I know it's brutal working minimum wage, just like you finished before you start. Things got ugly for a while back then. I know I thought that you wouldn't pull through. Late at night when the phone in, there's no telling what you would do. Sometimes we yell and act mad as hell Sometimes we act like we didn't care Some of our love is just suffocating And left you turn blue And move, gasping for air Come on, kid, come on It's one foot in there
1: Up in philadelphia a city that i've had the pleasure of visiting myself and, oh cool and it's a city that does have an edge what's yeah. your memories of, of growing up in that city and and because it, it's clearly had an impact on you
2: yeah um i'd like to return frankly um in the end um that's kind of where things seem more balanced to me and i think they actually are more balanced i think california this particular town we're in santa barbara is a very affluent one and it's a bubble um, politically, socio-politically, um, it's all wealthy people, and um, which is fine, I guess, if you are wealthy. When you're not, it's a bit of a struggle. And uh, I think the last couple of years, especially in the pandemic, it's become a magnet for people with tons of cash, and so they buy these houses. They've driven up the market, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas in Philly, you can be a working person like I am, or like my wife is, and you can actually afford a decent place to live and a decent place to send your kids. So it's one of the last vestiges in America where that's true on a large scale. Most things are very uh, extreme. It's extreme. You're extremely wealthy or you're pretty much poor. The middle has eroded. And I think that's a lot of the reason why we've had a lot of the issues we've had. All that said philadelphia it generates great memories for me i mean my wife when she came to visit and got acclimated to the city the first couple of times one of her funniest quotes was i was like oh right here is where we would play stickball and then we would go back here and run down into the golf course we'd break in here and we'd get drunk down there and she looked around and said you are like a real american boy <laughs> Which is such a funny take because, you know, but I think it's indicative of where she's from, which is here. You know, it's a it's a California bubble and she really kind of nailed it. Like it was like growing up the way it looks kind of in movies when you think of working class kids. You know, that's what my upbringing was. It was street hockey And uh, stickball and wiffle ball and all this kind of jazz and running over to your friend's house, skateboarding, you know, bands practicing in basements and in attics and things like that. So, um, yeah, my upbringing was was, you know, now it looks so simple. It seemed much more complicated then because I was sort of raging and raging against whatever machine I thought was there. Um, Little did I know how things would shake out. I have a positive view of, of how I was raised. Now, yes. in the moment, it was it was the evangelical Christianity of it all was pretty smothering.
1: If you don't mind me asking, how long did it take you to realize actually my my upbringing was actually a good one, and I, and I appreciate what what was done for me. I mean, how how long well, does that take?
2: Um, I mean, I could I knew it in the moment. You know, I knew that we had it better than some. You know, I think. Somewhere along the line, it somebody imparted to me that it's important to try to hold two opposing views in your head at the same time. And, um, and I think that that was true. Like I knew because of the school, like I went to private school and it wasn't private school the way you picture it. It was Jesus private school. So there were good things about that and and advantages to that. It wasn't like we got prepped for college or we got prepped for like a trade or the world. It was, it was making Christian soldiers or whatever, Christian evangelicals, people to go out and be Christian or whatever. So I knew that I was getting a better education in quotes than a lot of the kids in the neighborhood because they were dealing with a whole host of other issues. But I also knew it was fucked up to tell a kid that if they get pregnant and they're a teenager, that they're going to go to hell unless they apologize to the school board. I mean, I knew both of those things were true. Yeah. I mean, over time, I still feel the same way. I feel like there were good things. There were good people there trying to do good things. I think the administration was pretty fucked up, but I don't hold any animosity towards them anymore. I've fought that battle and to some degree feel like I won. Nobody wins, but I feel like my voice was heard and I feel like the hypocrisy on a small in that small little bubble, I helped to shine a light on with my friends and uh, I feel like I learned a lot, and I think again, a lot of those people are good people that just were living in fear. And I think when you when you put fear into the equation, a lot of times you end up with with bad decisions.
1: So if you're surrounded by in going to private school with evangelical Christians, how how was like metal music and punk music making its way to you? Were these the friends that you're making and playing stickball with, like away yeah. from the school? And and were you going back to them and saying? I got told at school today that if I make a girl pregnant, like my wiener might drop off or or
2: like shit, whatever you got told. And they were going, don't be stupid. What are you talking about? I did have friends that were older kids. Uh, it was making its way to me. I mean, don't forget. I was in eighth grade when, when uh, the grunge broke. So it was weird. I mean, my dad and his best friends we're super into rock and roll and Jesus. So it was very it was very hard to determine what was happening. Like, my Uncle Bob loved The Clash and played The Clash for me and Joe Jackson and Elvis Costello and all that stuff, but also was an elder at the church. So it was a mixed message that I clearly gravitated towards one more than the other. Yeah. Friends of mine that were into, they'd find out, you know, that were a little older in the school would go like, oh, you like Aerosmith? You'll really like Iron Maiden. Oh, you like Iron Maiden? You'll really like Metallica. You'll really like The Misfits. You'll really like. And then the explosion culturally of, you know, 1991 being Red Hot Chili Peppers, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden and all those things. Like there was no escaping that. All you had to do was find a friend with MTV and sit there for a while and you suddenly would have your mind blown. Also, we were city kids. So sure, I was going to the Burbs for school, but I could just hop on a bus for a dollar and go downtown and go to the Trocadero. I could go to South street and there was, there were places you could go for that culture. You could walk in and find whatever those bands liked. So, Oh, social distortion. Okay. I think Pearl jam likes them or um, those kinds of things. And, and this was the era where liner notes, you'd buy a record and people would put their thanks list in there. And Oh, they thank this band, okay, I'm going to find out, you know, about more about the Ramones and more about all this stuff. So we were on a treasure hunt culturally as people who were you know we take our lawn mowing money and go down to main street music and i'd say okay i want testament and he'd say no you want the replacements okay i want um the new metallica all right but you really want the new REM. And so there were people just throughout my life where that were helping, you know, kind of helping me help turning me on to different things. And it was metal and punk and it, but it was all kinds of stuff. It was change addiction and Tori Amos and, you know, don't forget spin magazine was pretty all encompassing at that time. And, and we just as easily turn you on to a tribe called quest as they would uh, dinosaur junior or primus or any of that it was like sort of this explosion of youth culture back then that that was being commodified and i was happily trading my lawn mowing dollars for any of it so at what point did you go
1: are you listening to it and you go actually i want to i want i want to play like because i think People have the idea that they want to play and then they realize, oh, this is fucking hard. I need to put time in. Oh, I don't wanna do that.
2: Yeah, That's it was cool. hard. It was early that I wanted to, and I could kind of work out the rift to outshine by social distor or by uh, Soundgarden. Dun, dun, doo, 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 you know, that or or but it seemed still like a like an abstraction given the fact that they were great bands. They were awesome. They were really good players, Soundgarden and uh pearl jam in particular and and i was coming from van halen and all these like incredible players and so it did seem impossible the further i got into punk the more possible it seemed it was uh well i could play the clash riff i could play the ramones riff and then it it occurred to me pretty quickly like oh but these guys write really good songs and so as much as i was into the energy and excitement of punk I knew that the best bands were the ones with the best songs, and so that's sort of what I've been chasing ever since.
1: I read a funny story that at the age of thirteen, you created a a metal band uh, for a school uh, show, and it was about drug. Abuse. Yeah, well, was this was this for your evangelical? Yeah. school, amazing. Yep. <laughs> so, how did you end up going from from like kind of messing around with bands and and then? going and going actually you know what i want to i want to try and give this a go because i I know you've done like contracting work you've done bar work which is important because i don't trust anyone who's never worked behind a bar i don't (laughs) know what kind of life you've lived but you need to pull a pint right transition and and you start doing bands in in philadelphia like so, like step ahead and then the curse but they're both hardcore bands so how can you kind of lean to hardcore more than kind of the traditional fast punk
2: a couple reasons. One, I'll, that was what my peers were into, um, and again, I had these older friends, and they were they got really into um, like youth crew hardcore, and they got into Bad Brains and Sick of It. All. I really loved Sick of It All, um, and then I ended up working for them. Yeah, but yeah. Um, it was the barrier of entry is really low. I mean, that's the cool thing about that community is like, if you got a decent band, they'll let you open. We, I mean, my first band opened for Sick of It All and Madball and all those, um, you know, hardcore New York hardcore greats. We, opened, uh, my second band, got to open for Fugazi and Avail and, um, you know, great, incredible bands. Um, and so I think part of it was that, and and it was just who you meet who you're around you know it was really exciting then and simple you were like oh wow a BFW show okay cool and we can play great you know the reason we didn't get accepted much that my initial band was we weren't genre specific enough we would have a song with like a tones kind of beat and we'd have a song that was fast and like we liked all kinds of music and played all kinds of music and that's what limited us in terms of how much the hardcore kids would accept us because they wanted everything by the book and a mosh part and you know and to me I was like well that's what sucks about this music is that it all sounds the same that was probably it and then through that I started but now a lot of this was unconscious or subconscious you know I was just kind of like a dumb young kid who was either looking to get high or looking to get out on the road or go to a show Or, you know, I was just interested in in something other than the drudgery of what I was surrounded by, which is, you know, the working class life. These people traveled and stuff. And so, you know, when I met Kid Dynamite, they were a band who had aspirations to tour and they they knew all the right people because they were in other bands and all this stuff. So I sold their T-shirts, saw what a tour was and met the bouncing souls met sick of it all met all these bands and then they hired me as their roadie and i went to europe and suddenly i'm in europe seeing how and basically what seemed like uh an impossibility i saw how it worked i said oh they go here and they make their money and each show gets bigger hopefully over time and They sell T-shirts and they keep that money and, oh, okay, these are professional musicians and this is how this works. It suddenly didn't look like Soundgarden or or Van Halen or the Red Hot Chili Peppers. It was like, oh, no, these are guys I know who just did a tour and came home each guy with 10 grand or whatever. Like, okay, I I get this. And so that was the model that started to make it make sense to me as a career or whatever it was like oh these guys the bouncing souls are just going to keep cranking out records and keep touring and that's how they do it oh okay well i can try that and then that's what i did with the loved ones it was essentially modeled after what i had learned from them and what i had learned to and what not to do from them and the sick of it all and all the other bands that we had toured
0: You okay?
1: about the bouncing souls and i was gonna ask you a question what makes a good roadie um, but <laughs> I, I think that's a dumb question if i'm honest um, but the bouncing souls have clearly played a part in in your career because pete produced one of your solo albums and yeah um they the band whereabouts you toured with no effects and and it, and it seems to be that well, the story is that fat mike watched you guys play and he wanted to sign you there's loads of stories out there about Mike. But w- why is it like to negotiate a a record contract with a person <laughs> like Mike?
2: Well, there's there's the Mike we negotiated with and then there's the Mike that people might negotiate with now. Those are two different people. <laughs> I'll say that and maybe not say too much more as uh he's a, he is a friend and I don't necessarily need to blow up his whole he, he, how the whole thing works. It's kind of up to him to talk about that and he loves to do that for others and just say whatever comes to mind i don't know it was fine it was easy i don't you know he liked us and and decided to sign us it wasn't part of that ease was what was attractive about it attractive about it to me because i didn't like extra pressure in retrospect we shouldn't have signed there. We should have probably signed with a more ambitious record label that wanted to match what our goals were. Uh, You know, it all comes out in the wash. I don't really care at this point. I like how everything (laughs) shook out, but I think some of the other options we had at the time would have probably been better. And Mike was starting down a path that I thankfully got off of as drugs and booze became more and more of his picture uh, we that happened to be the same for the loved ones and me. You know, we were also in that. And so I think there was, there's a camaraderie there that is dangerous. And uh, looking back, it's not cool that he threw me an eight ball and said, sign with us. It was cooler to have Brett Gerwitt say, Hey, let's talk about songwriting. You know, I've never told that to anyone, but that's that's part of what happened and i think that you know you look back and go god damn it i mean brett Growitz continues to write awesome songs and run a really successful record label which i de- don't necessarily even want to be on now but looking back at the foolishness of youth you're like you know maybe we could have been a bigger and better band or whatever you know a more impactful band if i could have gotten certain demons under control and been more focused
1: but surely that that life lessons that obviously you've taken on in your solo career because and this is no disrespect to to the success of the loved ones that that has clearly gone above what you
2: oh yeah doing yeah yeah i mean you you want to learn and grow and change and get better and not keep repeating those mistakes those were big mistakes that i can see now i couldn't see them then and i'm like i said i'm glad it worked out the way it did but it was painful a lot of that stuff was painful to have to go through, you know, but I, you know, I think it's important to just know that's that's life and hopefully you learn and grow and change and get better. And And um, I think I'm putting out the best music that I've made now. It's better than the music I made then, in my opinion. It's more whole. You know, we can do stuff like that or stuff like something else. And it's all under the same umbrella. And back then it was a little bit more genre specific. And, you know, I don't know. I'm thankful to be sort of a late bloomer. That's okay with me.
1: This is a difficult question. uh, And you can tell me if you don't want to answer it. But do you think that if you did sign to Epitaph, you wouldn't have had the drink and drug issues that you faced later down the line?
2: No, I think it, I think those things have to get worked out regardless of what you do professionally. Um, but, uh, I don't, I'm not necessarily, I mean, there were other options too. Hmm. It wasn't just epitaph or fat, but no, those, those issues needed to get worked out regardless of what happened, whether or not we had a record deal was irrelevant. I, I was in deep pain, and uh, needed to get out of that somehow. And and it took a long time, long time to get to a place where I could even approach the idea of sobriety. Probably 10 more years almost.
1: So let's talk about your solo work, because the first time I saw you uh, live doing your solo stuff was a revival tour in the UK in 2011, if you can believe there was a 2011. Um, it, (laughs) It was yourself, Chuck Reagan, Brian Fallon, uh, Dan Andriano, you were part of, I think was the original revival tour in 20, 2009 with uh, Tim Barry and Jim Ward. Now, no,
2: that was, that was the original one was 2008. And oh, that okay. was, um, that was Chuck and Ben Nichols and uh, oh, who the hell knows uh, Tim Barry, Tim Barry, Tim Barry, they did the first one. And then various people came in on that one. In 09, I did a couple days, but I wasn't like a solo performer. Really. I just grabbed it and acoustic guitar and made it up as I went in 09. I just kind of showed up for a couple shows and realized the folly in saying no to the 08 one. Yeah. <laughs> he asked me to do some on the 08 one. And I said, Oh, I'm not ready for a solo thing and realized pretty quickly. Wow. This is tremendous. And this is really special and wished I had said yes to more of it.
1: The reason I'm asking you this is because I'm about to name drop. Jerry Cape, who who's been on the pod a couple of times talked about having imposter syndrome being around Uh musicians who he felt were better than him. And you have spoken about having imposter syndrome yourself in in your career. How was it being around artists who are traditionally playing fast punk rock, but are trying their hand and successfully at more acoustic, folky music? I mean, how did you find yourself around that? Did Did you find yourself standing at the back, like Joey said, when you all come on stage to do your um like the shanty song or did you find yourself actually getting more confident and going i can hang like i am i am with these guys
2: i mean probably both are true i felt um intimidated by it but there's something special about in particular Chuck Reagan and his, his approach to other people, he's so gracious and kind and, um, encouraging. And he was very much like, you can do this. You got this in you brother. Like let's do, you know, and to have a big brother like that is, is there's nothing quite like it. And that sort of culminated at, at that eleven one Cause I, I had a, um, a record coming out or a record out and i had dan and chuck both being extremely encouraging from a big brother standpoint two bands that had been long favorites and and extremely successful and these two guys were like you're doing the right thing and then in brian we were more like peers we brought his band on on tour and then they exploded in popularity and he was more like a a twin brother or a, or a younger brother almost who was going like, you can do this, you can do this, you know, and someone who had extreme success. So all three of them were pushing doubts away and making me uh, better or You know, encouraging me to be better and to try more things. And, and so it was simultaneously imposter syndrome and encouraging. And I think that's sometimes there's like a good I mean, I, I always feel that way. I feel like you're building confidence by practicing and trying to get better, but also well aware at, you are not Paul Simon and you are not Adele and you are not you know there's just people that are doing it at such an incredible level whether that's brandy carlisle or or dolly parton or or tom Petty or whatever you know simultaneously you're building confidence because the audience is is getting engaged and getting excited but you also know your shortcomings so i think you want to keep both of those things true
0: Face it,
1: it takes a real man to stand up in a Philly sports field and sing the national anthem
2: because oh my god, Philly fans
1: are not the nicest. (laughs) I went to a couple of Philly uh, sports shows and just by being British, fuck me! Yeah, come on, man, I'm just here to watch a a a game. Uh, But how was it? How was it like singing the national anthem at uh, at the uh,
2: really, really scary? It was an honor, but it was a scary one. I, you know, there's not really basically. Doing a good job in a situation like that is not fucking up, you know, because at the end of the day, again, I'm not Adele. I can't hit notes the way she can. I don't sing that. I don't sing that way. And really good singers can fuck up the national anthem. And I'm not a really good singer, like textbook, really good singer, you know, with like a killer instrument and like tons of range and all that stuff. So I practiced hard I did what every every other uh, working class person does when a difficult challenge comes. I worked at it. And I got it done, <laughs> you know, and and hopefully, and it was kind of just a win for all of the punk rock, hardcore troubadour, whatever we are, you know, is like a win for all of us, and and uh, you know, but I don't, it was not easy, and it wasn't, uh, yeah, you know, it wasn't met without a lot of nerves. I was nervous as shit. But uh, I was honored to do it You don't say no And maybe I'll do it again Maybe they'll just have me ring the bell At the Sixers game That'll be a lot easier I just hit the bell with a hammer And then I'm done
0: <laughs> Can I move to California And keep my head held high These bipolar East Coast forecasts They leave me frightened I got more Since the day she died I've never been too good At saying long goodbyes Write me one good song And dry my sister's eyes And bury me in Philly when I die Bury me
1: Bury me and Let's talk about the new album then, Blood Harmony. You, you put out your first solo album ten years ago. Um, yes. Did you ever think that, ah, oh, I'd I'll be, I'll be writing an album ten years' time using the power of the internet Talking to my brother uh no. creating songs. Like it's it sounds sci-fi batshit, doesn't it?
2: Of course. Yeah. It's bizarre. Um but if you would tell me if you would have told me that that was a possibility, I would be intrigued, mostly because I'd get to work with my brother. And at, at in 2011, he was in high school and there was a chasm of, of years between us that I didn't know how to bridge. And so if you told me that, I'd be super excited because I love my little brother and wanted to bridge that 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 chasm and didn't know how and so i feel like it's one of the great things that's ever happened to me to be able to collaborate with him and have a really close and loving relationship with him because once i once i was in my 20s and he was in his teens it was hard to know you know how do you relate and 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 so that's that's the big takeaway there that 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 it's magic that, that we get to work together. And I'm really excited about the songs we made. I'm, I'm super excited about getting them into people's ears tomorrow. And then over the course of time and touring, getting them into people's hearts. That's that's an extremely cool thing. But I'd be lying if I told you I wasn't nervous about this too. It's on our own record label and you want to succeed. And yet you've pulled all help out You know what I mean? Like it's you and your team and that's it. Like the record label, theoretically, you can blame if things go wrong or they can theoretically get you things that you can't get on your own theoretically. So there is nerves. There's just naturally nerves. We're about to like put something out that people may reject or, or people may not buy or people may not hear or whatever. So that all that's at play. But generally speaking, when I do my good, um, mental health work, I go, yeah, I'm proud of the work we did. And I'm excited about this. And I can keep my head held high. And, you know, I can be honorable to my, my sons and you know what I mean? All those things that you hope to be, I think we are being, and that's all you can really ask for. I don't know. I mean, if people want to meet us where we're at and hear the record and love it, that's even better. But I think I can keep my head held high going in tomorrow knowing we did just about everything we can to make this thing great and hopefully it succeeds. And success again is a moving target. So, I mean, to some degree it already has succeeded because I know it's going to be out in the world and that's great. Are you
1: scratching like a punk rock itch though? Like by, by releasing it DIY by yourself?
2: Yeah, I guess it, I guess at heart, mostly just because look, I don't like being exploited and that's what a record deal mostly is. If you succeed in any way in reaching an audience, the minute that happens, it's a bad loan. That was true for Fat Mike. With the loved ones, that was true for, it's true for everybody. And I mean, that's the game. That's the, I get it. I understand. And so I don't fault anyone for owning any of these record labels. I have one now of my own. It's for my music and my brother's music though. And so we'll be rewarded with the success that does come. However, there's part of me that's like, no, thanks. I'm good. I'll figure out a way to do this myself. And you don't get to take most of it from me when I do the work of communicating with people and they do the work of finding an artist like me or finding an artist like my brother. That's, I think the punk chip on my shoulder, but really it's more just like, this is cool. We get to control this ourselves. It's got less to do with the, the chip on my shoulder than it does. I don't want any, let's put out the record the day We want it to come out. I don't care what the rest of the music industry is doing. I want to do what we want to do and what we think is cool. And that part of it is the positive instead of that anti-negative kind of like punk, punk, punk thing. I'm more just like, ah, this is a way to be at peace. It's, you know, at the end of the day, we made the decision and we can live and die by it.
1: Uh, Before we go, I have to ask you, the Falcons, any plans for yourself and Brandon and and (laughs) Nigel to get together and just do something? Because it seems to come out every decade and we're coming up to the next one so come on no plans. hell
2: no no <laughs> uh, there was no plan going into that i know but uh no I don't, I don't think so i mean i love all three of those guys i love dan i love neil and i love brendan but they've got their bands that they're busy with now the lawrence arms are back to being pretty busy and obviously dan's an alkaline trio and they're currently on tour and, and i've got this i don't you know the falcon was kind of a lark it was fun and that then it was over and that's the coolest thing about it to me. I don't know if they'll make more music maybe, but I don't, I can't see a situation where I'm leaving my s- twin sons and wife to go play Falcon shows. Like, maybe, who knows? <laughs> who knows? I mean, I wouldn't say no, but I, I certainly am not saying yes either. It's just, it's kind of a thing that happened and a lot of times it's cool to just leave things where they were
1: well i look forward to getting my hands on the new album blood harmony and i look forward to catching you when you are over the uk and europe in february we we now have to say uk and europe it's like it's a thing that's always pissed me off is that when people say europe they they always have to say the uk and it's like why can't you just say
2: europe well you you guys fucked up <laughs> 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 what do you want from me I, I would love to call it europe i don't like
1: uh but we're still europe we are still part of Europe. we haven't like i
2: know but i got way. so much back for the inverse wherein i would say oh we're coming to europe we're, we're, we're the uk well congratulations it's on the same tour i don't know i mean scotland they like to be referred to as their own thing i don't know i i can't keep up with this shit but <laughs> it's uh, complicated. i'm happily gonna be in the uk i love the uk it's not about uh, imperialism it's about the rock and roll shows we get to play there and uh you know what i like it if you had euros yeah it would just make things a little easier but who the hell knows i mean you didn't have euros when you were part of the eu so no
1: nah, we, well, we, we don't yeah. want any of that like <laughs>
2: I know. See, everyone right away you got an opinion about the pounds and the euros. I don't know, dude. I mean, I have American dollars, so what? I'm in my own mess.
1: <laughs> Dave, thank you for talking to me, pal. And I um I wish you all the best. And I hope and I hope you're watching We Bear Bears. If you're not, get on with your kids. You will love it. It's okay. Amazing.
2: Oh, I appreciate the, the, uh, the recommendation. I am now going to sign off and do a quick photo shoot with my friend Jesse, but thanks so much for having me on, man. Uh, you're great at interviewing and it was really comfortable and I look forward to doing it again.
1: Perfect. Dave, have a good one, man. See you buddy. Bye-bye. Thank you so much today for taking the time to chat and just being a fucking rad dude. Go pick up a physical copy of his new album, Blood Harmony. If you don't want to wait for a physical one, go pick up uh, a digital one. Uh, If you need assistance in doing that, there is a link in the episode description of this podcast. Thank you also to the young lads from Derby, Last Generation. Go show them some love because they are fucking talented. One of them's 13. Fuck me. I was just masturbating and eating crisps for the age of 13. Uh, I wasn't in a punk band that's trying to save the fucking planet. Go show them some support and uh, go throw them some money if you can and uh, buy whatever they've got on sale. Again, link in the episode description of this podcast. That's it for this month. But for you people, you amazing people who stuck around to the end, I'm going to give you a little clue on who I booked for the Christmas episode. You ready? Steady. It's going to be a fairy tale in New York that's your clue say no more uh if you don't get it from that then i don't know what's wrong with you it's kind of obvious if you go into a punk show and you see someone fall down you pick them right back up again but until next time you are amazing bye-bye
0: Like heaven on repeat.